This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen to new episodes on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern and listen to the show at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. That's where you can access the chat room during the show and follow Know It All for regular updates. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown, president of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we create education equity plans and promote equity in education in compliance with federal civil rights law. Our website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. There you can read our blog and subscribe to the ABC Know-It-All newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. Today on Know-It-All, we are talking about tackling mental illness in schools and supporting healthy social and emotional development in students. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show today Dr. Sam Steen, an assistant professor of school counseling at the Graduate School of Education and Human Development at the George Washington University here in Washington. He is a certified K-12 school counselor, having served in elementary and secondary schools for 10 years. I welcome you to the show today, Dr. Steen. Thank you so much for being on Know-It-All. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, Allison, today. So you are a counselor, and your expertise is school counseling. Tell me how you found your way into counseling as a career. So first let me just go on record to um, make one point of clarification. I am an associate professor at George Washington and recently mm-hmm. received tenure with promotion as of last year. So I know that Oh, congratulations. You Thank you for that, that clarification. I just want to make that clarification because it actually gives me a little more liberty and freedom in the work that I'm engaging in at this point in my career. I um, Honestly, you know, I majored in psychology as an undergrad and mm-hmm. was also a student athlete and had, um, you know, a less than sort of great GPA. I had a 2.2 when I was coming out as an undergrad, and I had an advisor mm-hmm. that mentioned to me I wouldn't be able to get into graduate school. At the same time, I was also helping others in the career services, apply for graduate school, et cetera. I applied and got in based on my letters of recommendation, apparently. So that's the beginning of of me going from, you know, undergraduate to um, a master's in school counseling, not really knowing exactly what that career path would entail, but I knew counseling would be helpful for the African-American community, and I assumed that I would be a marriage and family uh, therapist at the time. So why psychology and mental health? Well, partly it came very natural to me. I believe I had been a counselor in my family for many years. I recall vividly sitting on uh, the kitchen countertop with my mom and dad arguing about something related to their relationship, and I look at my dad and say, Dad, what mom is trying to say to you is X, Y, and Z. (laughs) And then to look over to my mom and say, Mom, what what dad is trying to say is, you know, A, B, and C. And ironically, it was something that came very natural to me. It could be uh, related to being a middle child, 
I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So when I got to um, school, I was encouraged to major in business and all these other things, but psychology just was a very natural fit. And then I mm-hmm. mentioned that transition from undergrad to the master's program in school counseling where mm-hmm. I really found my niche. And rather than go the marriage and family way, I chose elementary school because I knew I would have access to both children and their families. And mm-hmm. that's where I started. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a black man, and um, are you encouraging other black men to join the profession or to think about the profession of counseling? And if so, how are you doing that? I would say it, it's a it's a great question because early in my career, n- n- not as a um, not as the school based level, not as a practitioner, but early in my academic career, I had a few goals, and one was to encourage more African American males in education, generally speaking, not necessarily school counseling, but over time I recognized that the platform in which I have access to is the lens in which I find myself engaging in, you know, that type of work. So the answer directly is yes, but indirectly, with the exception of one sort of uh, salient piece of research that a colleague and I conducted around the number of African-American male counselor educators in the field. And we found or discovered that there were only about 33 of us that we became aware of through, you know, asking others to give us information on other counselor, black male counselor educators. And we only used uh, certain types of universities which are accredited through our um, accrediting body. And mm-hmm. there are over 300, 300 of those universities. And from those 300 universities, there's roughly five to seven faculty members. And if you do the math, out of all of those universities, potentially that number of um, faculty members, there were only 33 black men. And wow. So, yeah, that, that became sort of a seed or fuel to encourage me to to be a little more intentional about this type of work, recognizing that I am a role model and that I do have a platform to encourage others uh, in this line mm-hmm. of work. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the I've had the great privilege of working on um, the My Brother's Keeper initiative and the, the private sector side of that initiative that uh, the, the president announced in February to uh, ensure life success for boys and men of color. Um, and the White House recently released a report that, that talks about healthy families and communities, and um, we've had several conversations about ensuring that there are more men of color in schools, and not only as role models and supports for boys of color, but so that all kids can see that this is what a successful man of color looks like. Um, and, you know, I've heard uh, Dr. Vanessa Siddle-Walker say, you know, we didn't have the issue, many of the issues that we see in schools now with black boys when there were black men in school. Is there something to that? Are, are we missing something when we, when we are not inviting and open to having more men of color and black men in school? I think that the children suffer the most, as you pointed out. And I see it 
manifest in a few ways. One, as a black man who continues to engage and work in school settings, you know, whether it's the research or some of the having my students go in and do some mentoring programs, I, I mm-hmm. recognize that some of the students are uncomfortable with black men. And I'm not mm-hmm. really sure what, what that, where that stems from. I can make some assumptions. I don't necessarily always feel comfortable making some of these stereotypical assumptions, but it could be that mm-hmm. they're raised primarily by women, that the schools are mm-hmm. primarily still dominated by women, although there are men in leadership positions. So they're unfamiliar with, you know, um, a black man saying, you know, you, you need to do this or do this or do this. That That's sort of one explanation I have. The other is that oftentimes children are not just black boys, but children are in urban communities are um, expected to grow up faster. And therefore, mm-hmm. they're not really used to anybody telling them what to do at this point in a way um, that they're receptive to, you know, this type of information. So you have, there's something to what your colleague was saying about how things have changed and the importance of us being there. At the same time, it's not an easy fix because just because mm-hmm. I'm an African-American male does not mean that the black boys respond to me readily, like, where have you been all my life? If anything, there are times where they, especially at the elementary level, where they're uncomfortable or mm-hmm. or not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with with the seeming proliferation in school shootings lately, I have spent a lot of time explaining to schools and others that School counselors are are the answer to creating a healthy and safe and nurturing school environment for students and not increased police presence. Is that right? And why, if so, why are counselors so critical in school environments? So I think you're right on target with the ability of school counselors to really help administrators create a climate that's conducive to growth and development and support and the literature is clear. You only really need one person in that school to believe in you, um, and therefore you are encouraged to move forward that you can do it. But uh, when it comes to what we're experiencing in the media with the shooting and, you know, the school violence, I recognize the counterargument would be, well, we need to make schools safer, and here's how we do it, the same way we would try mm-hmm. to you know, create safer community environments. So my argument is that we need to work in tandem. That there's got to be a way that we're all on the same page about this is the ultimate goal of creating a safe environment and that the, the police's presence is to help secure the environment, but that working with the mental health practitioners is to create a comfortable environment and together um, when folks feel safe, but also they feel like they can be themselves and have a little fun along the way, that um, I think we'd be moving in a better direction. I don't feel comfortable with the idea of, you know, educators carrying guns. I really don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. with yeah. metal detectors. It just it just sends a mm-hmm. message that that you know that there are many jails, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I've done a, a great deal of work on um, what what some folks call the school-to-prison pipeline, which um, is a, a, a term that 
originated with Marion Wright Edelman and the Children's Defense Fund, um, and I think is really twofold. It is that we see for far too many black and Latino children, um, the police presence in school is actually trained on them instead of trained on the outside world and protecting this school environment and them as students and children from the the outside world, um, which means that, that students are, are literally being taken out of school in handcuffs and shackles for things that wouldn't necessarily be criminal offenses uh, for adults on the street. Um, so there's a literal school-to-prison pipeline, but then figuratively speaking, when we hear about you know suspensions and expulsions and zero-tolerance school discipline policies, um, you know a, a student who is suspended once, especially in high school, uh, that student is more likely to end up suspended again and again, and more likely to end up in the juvenile justice system. Uh, and so we see the effects of of the, the punitive nature of discipline and correction, behavior correction. Um, and I'm just wondering your thoughts on counseling as a way to correct behavior and instill, um, instill in the same way that we instill uh, in children, you know, mathematics and, and the right way to perform uh, an algebraic function, um, the way that we need is the way that we also need to instill in children the right way to perform uh, with their peers and behave with um, with adults in the classroom. Um, what do you What do you think about counseling and its potential impact on things like the school to prison pipeline and, and the punitive culture that that exists for for far too many children of color? Yes, I think you're again 100 percent recognizing the impact that, that school counseling or mental health can play on overall student uh, success or achievement. Where the challenge comes into play is trying to tackle these issues in isolation. So certainly you can teach a kid how to do algebra, but that, that learning stems from day one when the kid learns how to hold a book and, you know, points out, you know, the giraffe, if you will, that later translates into being able to track in a book that later translates to be able to look at the board and write the algebraic function down, et cetera, et cetera. So systematically, this learning occurs very early on. So you have the implications for early childhood. And then once school, you know, once kids get to school, sort of the expectation, you know, for little boys and little girls. Little girls can sit there quietly. Little boys sometimes, can, you know, out of their seat, they move around, et cetera, et cetera. There's implications for just social skills training very early on. But when there are some disconnects in some of the communities in which we experience, early childhoods overlooked, some of the schools in which we find our youngsters that we're referring to in where the bathroom doesn't work, they don't have current textbooks, there's some gaps there. So, we can wait until middle school to try to address the dropout issue or, you know, the sort of the school-to-prison pipeline, if you will. But I think mm-hmm. we need to make a drastic systemic change that takes into account both the community and the school and the family. We are all responsible for that. So, yes, the mental health part can contribute to it, 
but we're presently stuck on a standardized, achievement-based sort of society, and we're not recognizing the importance of the soft skills and the other sort of, like you alluded to earlier, you know, encouraging kids to a growth mindset, which tends to be more, you know, looking at their uh, emotional capacity or their emotional intelligence, if you will, or their their mm-hmm. perceptions of self and their self-efficacy, which you can't always quantify. So mm-hmm. I think we need to take a more holistic approach at trying to address these specific skills that you refer to uh, when you use the analogy mm-hmm. of teaching a kid. Um, you know, algebra, yes, we can teach kids social skills, yes, but these things have to occur um, systematically and systemically, not necessarily in isolation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned the growth mindset, and, uh, and Carol Dweck, who is one of the um, preeminent scholars on the growth mindset, uh, was on the show. And, you know, we talked about... Um, understanding growth mindset versus fixed mindset and uh, that growth mindset means that you are uh, encouraging children to really think about the the challenges that they experienced in accomplishing a task or in not accomplishing a task that they were trying to, um, that those challenges are actually most beneficial to them and not ultimately the task itself. Um, And I think that certainly requires an understanding of basic humanity in children. Um, and Dr. Philip Goff recently released a report that, uh, that, that showed that white America in particular views black boys as three and four and five years older than they actually are, so that uh, a 13-year-old boy who is talking back to a teacher is seen as an 18-year-old man, potentially, who is threatening and um, needs to be handled by law enforcement, which, which is a denial of, I, I think, that basic humanity that is required to even get to the point of talking about the growth mindset. Have you seen that actually manifested in schools, too? I would say yes. I've seen it manifest, but even earlier than that. So you know, again, these stereotypes about how some educators see certain students use 13-year-old. Imagine a 9-year-old who, you know, presents in their mind as a 12-year-old, but they're not 12 yet, but the assumption is even if they know they're 9, they're assuming by the time they become 12 or 14, they're going to be a problem, so let me address the issue now to prevent that problem but address the issue preventatively or not able to overcome their stereotypes or their racist way um, perceptions. So, yes, mm-hmm. it definitely is still alive and well in our schools. Back to the growth mindset part, yes, individually we can encourage students to, to become aware of these two sort of uh, – ways of knowing or ways of going about um, the world, but we also have to challenge the educators to be able to see that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you understand what I mean? So, yeah, we can encourage them, yeah. oh, here's the way you go, but if the educators don't buy into that philosophy or the mm-hmm. uh, sort of 
historically the racism that we've been experiencing in our communities uh, may prevent an educator from even allowing a student to flourish in a growth mindset way or to encourage a growth mindset because they don't, they're making the assumption that this student doesn't even have the potential to be successful because of whatever mm-hmm. barrier or assumption that is being made about that particular community. So, yes, we have the potential to do that, but I think we have a long way to go because many students are still suffering from uh, the classic stereotype threat. You know, here I have a, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a, it, it, and then I don't think it's, I'm trying to give a, an example. I don't think it's just, you know, white female educators who hold these stereotypes about children. Mm-hmm. I think our system of education holds these stereotypes about children. And I believe our children also are in an environment, no matter what color the educator is, that they're experiencing this racism. So a black man in school as a teacher still represents education, and therefore um, it can be problematic both ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just so that we explain it fully, stereotype threat, will you describe what stereotype threat is? Well, in a nutshell, uh, Claude Steele has been doing a number of studies where he would give students, say, a math examination, and he would give it to blacks and whites and Asians, and he would tell them up front, some groups, hey, you're going to be successful, you can do this, and other groups, hey, we're not sure how you're going to function, and it could be directly related to your background as a person of color. And time and time again, those students who either were encouraged or weren't fearful of the assumptions that were made about them outperformed those who either received the message they couldn't do it or it was a result of their status as a person of color um, not match up or measure up nearly as well as the other students who weren't suffering from this assumption being made about their potential based on their racial background. Mhm. Mhm. Um we've also talked on this show about the the myth of a culture of poverty. Um and Dr. Paul Gorski has been on the show to talk about his research related to this myth of a culture of poverty and I think it it is um something that we can extract into a, a race framework as well and I'm I'm always reluctant to conflate race and poverty, and I think that it it happens too often that we combine race and poverty and think of poverty as only affecting communities of color, black and Latino people in particular, uh, when when poverty actually is very much inextricably intertwined with race in this country because of uh, systems, and and, uh, you, you pointed out that, you know, systems themselves have been constructed in such a way that they are built on uh, a a racial framework. Um, And that certainly means that we see disproportionality in who is experiencing poverty, but that does not mean that uh, that all uh, people of color are poor or that all poor people are uh, people of color. But, you know, this this notion of a culture of poverty – and the assumption that because someone lives in poverty, they are a certain way, and that there is a culture that that goes with that, so that 
poor people don't value education. People um, don't themselves um, understand what education is or what it could be for their children um, and uh, are not inclined to <clears throat> try to encourage their children to receive an education or to participate fully in their educational experience. That that myth, I think, is actually translatable for race and for people of color. Um, and you, you touched on it a little bit in explaining Dr. Claude Steele's work around stereotype threat. Um, how do you counsel out of that notion of a culture of poverty or uh, a, a culture of black people or a culture of Latino people who that, that is based on deficiency first? Yeah, that's a huge problem. I find it more so in uh, the writing uh, and the research that I do where you know, there uh, we may facilitate an intervention with African American children in schools using a group counseling model that I've been developing. So when you do mm-hmm. the literature review, unfortunately, we continue to perpetuate these this deficit model of not just blacks or poor, but uneducated, unable, um, incarcerated, you know, depressed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still alive and well. I'm not exactly clear what you were asking me directly, but I will say that the way to encourage people out of this particular mindset is to provide more opportunities for them. And mm-hmm. um, a recent example, I had about six or seven master's students uh, working at Kelly Miller Middle School, which is in Washington, southeast Washington, D.C., and one of the assessments I used was a multi-ethnic identity measure, which uh, essentially determines whether or not a student is actively involved in their community, in this case, African-American community. After uh, giving that assessment to you know, a few children, I asked for reflections on that experience. And one African-American boy explained to me, I'm tired of learning about he kind of said it in a way that I'm just summarizing. I'm tired of learning about mm-hmm. black people. So that was fascinating or enlightening to me. He said, I want to learn more about others, in particular my students who weren't African American and other mm-hmm. communities beyond the Southeast community. So one way is to, you know, so for schools to be involved in um, breaking down the school walls and expanding the community beyond Southeast. D.C. as an example. Um, That's one way to counsel beyond this sort of assumption that kids who are living in poor communities are always going to be there. Because I believe once the light bulb is turned on that here's a path and you have access to that path um, to go beyond sort of your immediate uh, set of circumstances, I I think uh, we're on to something. And you are a huge proponent of group counseling and have developed your own model, is it, of group counseling? Why why is it that group counseling is important? Well, it stemmed from my early experience as a school counselor where I mentioned I was working in elementary school. I was the only school counselor. My very first job, there were 800 kids on my Mm. caseload, and it was pre-K through third grade, which is a very, very... uh, low 
sort of early age uh, in terms of stage of development. And it was at that point where in that school I was trying to counsel kids individually, you know, as, as if I were a therapist in a school setting. And it just didn't work. They were, the needs were too great. The community was, uh, it had a very affluent community, but also the other 60% of the kids were extremely poor. So you had this wide disparity in terms of economics. And a lot of the kids and families were struggling. And so at the end of that first year, I recognized that I had to do something different. And uh, a year later, I ended up going back to graduate school to pursue a Ph.D., and my advisor encouraged me to look more deeply into utilizing group counseling because I could reach more kids. And over time, what I've recognized that it's natural for me to function in that way, partly because of my um, background as an African-American. We tend to be more collective. Um, but also I recognize the benefits of peer-to-peer influence. Like we know it's around the, you know, early adolescence, the uh, ability of a peer to influence another peer trumps anything an adult can say to them. And then lastly, um, I've been trying to not only show students feel better about themselves, but that group counseling can help them perform better in school as well because we recognize if a student does feel better about himself and others are encouraging them that they can be successful, there uh, is great potential for them to to start to believe that themselves and to to actually make that come into um, to come to fruition. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a, a freshman at Howard University and really just needed to talk with someone, and mm-hmm. the counselor that I met there introduced me to group counseling, and I did group sessions that whole first year, and it, it probably was, was, first of all, it was my my best academic year at Howard, but it also helped me to put things in perspective and to understand that I wasn't alone, that other people are experiencing these things in the world and still functioning, and we can, you know, persevere. And it, it also helped me understand the value in voicing my experiences and, and just speaking out loud what I was going through, just that exercise alone was helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering for, for, um, for communities who don't necessarily have access to regular um, therapeutic experiences like group counseling, um, how do you encourage group counseling? So, you know, in, in schools like Kelly Miller Middle School in Southeast D.C., um, and elsewhere in the in the in the country, how do you encourage group counseling, and, and what do you do to um, to really facilitate entree into group counseling? Yeah, I kind of I, um, I, I one easy way to address your question is to admit that I don't per. I don't scream the word group counseling. I, I tend to say, if I'm working with a school, to say we'll offer some additional support. It could be mentoring, it could be some, you know, tutoring, et cetera, but I use the group counseling modality. That's the first thing. Because when people hear group counseling, like you alluded to earlier, they think therapy, what does that mean, how, mm-hmm. how is that even possible? So one is to tone down the word group counseling and to tone up the word mentoring, tutoring, additional support, and people tend to be open to that. The other part is to try to draw the link between that work and achievement. 
again, this notion of standardized based testing, the testing movement, achievement gaps, et cetera, they're not going anywhere. So that becomes the impetus, not the impetus, but that becomes the platform in which I can use to get into the schools to help students. I've been less successful or less intentional at trying to involve uh, the extended community, um, meaning adults, uh, with the exception of most recently writing a chapter on counseling African Americans using group counseling. So this was for adult clients. And what I recognize there, uh, one way is to um, capitalize on the importance of the church in our communities and therefore use that as sort of the mm-hmm. way to get into it. So by offering, hey, we're going to bring people together, yes, we can pray, but also here's a platform in which we can discuss these issues that we tend to overlook or try to hide because um, of the sort of limitations that are associated with sharing your problems. And um, we found that to be helpful. That's brilliant. So, so what can parents do? Let's let's say we have parents listening to this show, and they want to know. Okay, I want group counseling or mentoring or tutoring or wh- however we we want to frame it. I want it in my school. I want it for my kids. What can parents do to make that happen? Well, it would, it, it's a real simple react, uh, response, and that is to work closely with their school counselor or with the school counseling team at that school. If it's an elementary school, it might be one or two professionals. If it's a middle or high school, it will be a team of folks. And we are all trained in this modality. There are a lot of barriers that school counselors experience to implementing groups, partly people understanding what it is, partly the time that's associated with doing the work, and oftentimes even the training because we have only one class that we um, take in uh, graduate school in order to learn how to do this. But they, mm-hmm. the parents would start with the school administration or the school counseling team to just ask or inquire about what sorts of programs are offered here, and if it's not being offered, to ask for it. And it could be something as simple as social skills training. Again, once, mm-hmm. like you mentioned in your experience, once students are gathered together and have a platform in which to explore these issues, um, it tends to be insightful. There's a normalization that occurs where you feel like you're not the only one uh, dealing with these issues. Um, there's some opportunity to follow up with, um, to help others understand what the students are going through. And in doing that, uh, we've found great benefit in having those conversations um, temporarily and um, even a year later. Um, I'm alluding to some research we did where we conducted a group intervention, asked the students about it a year later, and they felt like that experience a year ago was helpful to them in that present time. Hmm. Hmm. And you've also alluded to the impact of counseling on student achievement. And, you know, we hear a lot about the academic achievement gap for students of color, between students of color and white students, which I think, you know, plays into exactly what you were talking about earlier with the, the deficit um, frame with which we we begin to tackle um, systemic issues and institutional issues that, that face communities of color. But um, how is it that that counseling can impact on student achievement and on 
closing academic achievement gaps? Yeah, I think we're missing the ball on this one. I mean, again, you look at the media and we talk about the school violence and the 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 um, gun issues that we're experiencing and all those things, and we know that um, th- we have to look at the mental health piece uh, component in in people and in individuals in our society. So in my mind, um, if you think about yourself, if you're depressed, you don't perform at the same level you would if you felt better about yourself. And so I believe that we should create school environments where people feel good about themselves. It could be through morning meetings or, you know, the administration coming on, um, the morning announcements, encouraging people you can do these things. However, that may be a sort of a general approach. More specific groups allow individuals to come together in a supportive way to in setting goals and some confrontation and peer interaction that would build on individual strengths and then from there prepare or um, help the students be ready to tackle challenging situations that occur um, in the educational school, whether it's navigating the school climate or navigating that challenging comprehensive examination. So I think that we're missing the gap and overlooking mental health in our schools more intentionally, and group counseling can specifically provide a venue in which you bring folks together, encourage them, and prepare them to to move forward. And is is group group counseling often a um, an an entree to individual therapy, and should it be? When you say entree, what are you referring to? So are are people who, students who participate in group counseling more likely to um, want and get individual therapy sessions with a counselor? And um, is that how it, it should work? Should group counseling encourage participation in individual counseling and therapy? I see. They're actually, they're quite different. So what happens in individual counseling in a school setting, let's just take that in particular, students come to the counselor primarily around scheduling. If they're at the Mm -hmm. secondary level, middle or high school, what classes are you going to take? You know, why did you fail this test? What are the challenges you're having with the teacher? So there's some of that individual. Sometimes the students are coming on, um, you know, by choice, and other times they're asked to come because that's just the nature of what you're doing. Group counseling tends to be offered uh, and students choose themselves. It's rare that there's a group created where you have to come. Although we've Mm -hmm. targeted students who may have failed, you know, uh, two or more core classes after the first nine weeks, we target those students. But we still give them, after screening them, the opportunity to say yes or no because it's clear that if a student chooses to come, they perform better than if they're forced to come. So I don't think it's necessarily that students individually, I mean, students um, see our experience in group counseling and then later want to be in counseling individually. Mm -hmm. I think it's more that group counseling offers 
something above and beyond individual because with individuals, just say myself and the one student, we're having a conversation. But if it's myself and six or seven students, one student that we're, you know, dialoguing about a challenge that they're experiencing now has five or six other helpers, if you will, and helpers that they would be more likely to listen to than myself. And so that's the beauty of what that platform or venue provides. And and you touched on this also, but thinking about multiculturalism and counseling, um, why is it important to you to infuse multiculturalism in counseling? What are the benefits of it? And how do you do that? Yeah, the benefits are great. Now, the... Um, Group counseling is known to function as a microcosm of society. So what that says is over time, if the environment is safe and the members or group members or students feel comfortable exploring their personal issues and receive some encouragement and some challenging or confrontation around these issues, they will grow. If group counseling is a microcosm of society, how can we overlook these other factors that are related to us individually that plays out in society. The the importance of exploring multiculturalism, cross-culturalism is critical. For students in school settings, how that manifests itself is by explaining to them that there's another dialogue going on about, let's say, for the group with all black boys. There's another dialogue going on about African-American males in school settings. Did you know that uh, back in 2002, there was a study that was conducted, and I think it was like 4.3% of the kids had graduated undergrad. And in 1976, that's the same statistic. So here we are, mm-hmm. 25, 27 years later, and the same percentage of individual black males are graduating that they did back then. Wow. Did you know that? And that helps highlight for them, like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. so we're going to incur, like, that's going on outside in the world, here I am experiencing some challenges here. I can do it. It, it can be done. Uh, I don't want that to continue, et cetera, et cetera. So bringing mm-hmm. in these multiculturalism, these cross-cultural dialogues, these other things that are occurring, I think are critical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I am, I am so sorry that we are out of time. I have so many more questions and, and <laughs> So many more things that I want to discuss. Dr. Sam Steen is an associate professor of school counseling at the Graduate School of Education and Human Development at the George Washington University. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Steen. Allison, it was my pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity to share some of the work that I'm doing. Audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about tackling mental illness in schools. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>